It's this kind of fundamental, kind of philosophical search for something real and something true, which is kind of where this aura that his paintings has come from. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a new podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest news story down to earth. And there's no question what that story is this week. Call him Leonardo, call him Da Vinci, you can even call him Lenny if you want. Leonardo Da Vinci has captivated the world's attention for half a millennium, and this week the Louvre is celebrating the 500th anniversary of Leonardo's death with a mammoth once-in-a-lifetime exhibition pulling together roughly 160 artworks and studies by the archetypal Renaissance master. Adding to the frisson of excitement around the show is the fact that, like Shakespeare or Archimedes, Leonardo is one of those rare figures in history whose genius is so extreme that it inspires both awe and a sense of mystery. And indeed, mysteries and geopolitical intrigue surround this show. To talk about what's in the exhibition, and just as tantalizingly, what's not, I'm joined by our reporter, Naomi Rea, who traveled from London to Paris to get an early look at the exhibition. Naomi, thanks for being on The Art Angle. Thank you for having me. So I want to get to those mysteries, but first let's talk about what's actually in the show. So you were in the Louvre yesterday. Can you briefly walk us through the exhibition? Sure. So it's in the Louvre's Napoleon Hall, which is downstairs underneath the iconic pyramid. Um, And it starts where you might imagine that it would start with... Uh, Leonardo's youth, where he was an apprentice in the studio of Verrocchio. So it starts with a large bronze by Verrocchio, which Leonardo looked at every day in the studio. It's uh, Verrocchio's Christ and and St. Thomas. And I know that the curators negotiated really hard to get this one in the show. It's supposed to be what inspired Leonardo when he was apprenticing and he was learning how to make sculpture. And it's kind of where his understanding of space and perspective and light kind of came from. Hmm. And in that first section, there are a couple of drapery studies by Leonardo. Then you move through the exhibition into the next section. And this is about his kind of break away from sculpture and into painting. So the idea is kind of that after he kind of he mastered, you know, form and the perfection of form, which was kind of what everybody was striving to do at the, at the time, he he sort of he wasn't getting what he wanted to get. And so he started to kind of think about imperfection and the imperfection of form and and kind of a way to capture movement. So he started doing what he called intuitive composition which is automatic writing but withdrawing um and this kind of yeah it is really fascinating it's this kind of experimentation that is visible in some of his illustrations and this is a section where these reflectograms come in can you explain what is a reflectogram exactly basically it's a, a kind of a photograph that is captured using infrared radiation which is kind of a, a way that you can use to kind of see through paint layers. So you can you can expose things like underdrawings and previous versions of the paintings that were kind of scrapped and painted over and that kind of thing, which was kind of an elegant solution for on the part of the curators to acknowledge some of the works by Leonardo that were not in the show. And in this one, you can see the reflectogram for the Adoration of the Magi. Mm-hmm. And that kind of lets you see some of these underpaintings and like discarded ideas underneath the layers of the paint. And you can see this kind of experimental Leonardo. After that, you kind of move through with Leonardo to Milan, where he was working in the court and he was producing some like of his great masterpieces like La Belle Ferronniere and the Virgin of the Rocks. 
And this is when his kind of disciples, Marco Dogiono and Boltrafio, kind of joined the studio. And so some of their kind of court portraits of the Milanese courtesans are are exhibited there, huh. as well as uh, Boltrafio's copy of The Last Supper, which is in some dispute amongst experts as to how good of a copy it is. I must say it's kind of a funny copy to look at, but uh, it's in the Louvre's collection, so it didn't have to travel very far. So Why is it so funny? Um, it's just kind of, The Last Supper is one of those paintings that has this aura around it. It's in a convent in Milan and it's so masterfully executed and there's something kind of Leonardo-esque about it undeniably that I think a copy is just not going to be able to look like a Leonardo. Interesting. So after this Milanese section, you move through into a section devoted to Leonardo's kind of scientific pursuits. So this is where, you know, his codexes are exhibited in these kind of papers that show his experiments in mathematics. There's a, a proof by diagram of Pythagoras's theorem and there's botanical studies and studies of anatomy such as the Vitruvian man. And it was the, in this period that he painted the Mona Lisa, the Last Supper and the Battle of Anghiari. So some of his, you know, most accomplished works. And there's that kind of connection made to this pursuit of science as making him a better painter. So where does the show go from there? So from there, I mean, it, some of his most accomplished works are exhibited. So here is where St. Anne is. Here is where John the Baptist is. Um, and then that, that brings you to kind of the close of, of the exhibition. Okay. So what is it like to be surrounded by such a profusion of Leonardo works? What is the, what is the cumulative kind of impact on, on you as a visitor? It's hard to say because I don't think you don't really experience the exhibition in the same way that a visitor would whenever you're seeing a kind of an early press view where everyone's kind of, there's a bit more of a, a perfunctory kind of aspect of, of how you, you travel through an exhibition. People are kind of rushing through and looking for, for kind of some news and, hmm. and there isn't really the kind of serenity or the time that you really want to spend with the Leonardo work. You kind of expect, I mean, at least what I expect when I think about going to see a Leonardo is this church-like atmosphere and a kind of the aura radiating from the paintings. Hmm. And and I think that having this impressive ensemble of works together and all these drawings, you would kind of expect that aura to just be radiating from the mm -hmm. walls. And I didn't quite get that, but it made me really want to go back, you know, whenever I had this kind of time and serenity. Although I think they've sold 200,000 tickets to the exhibition already. So I'm not sure anybody's going to be getting the like private, you know, time with uh, Leonardo. Um, <laughs> but I will say that was really interesting, though, to look at the infrared reflectograms of the works. That was kind of a really, a really cool addition to the show, in my opinion. And I know that it, some, some people might see it as a kind of consolation prize for not having the original works in some of them. But I think it was really interesting to look at the reflectograms of the works that were in the show. So you could actually kind of see them side by side and, and compare, you know, this kind of underlayer. So two things I've always admired about Leonardo's paintings are those extraordinary landscapes in the background that suggest psychological vistas and the way that unlike other Renaissance artists who painted nature in a stylized or abstracted way, Leonardo pays minute attention to every pebble and flower at his subject's feet. So were there any kinds of little moments in the show or any things you'd noticed about Leonardo's work that you hadn't seen before that really, you know, jumped out at you and grabbed you? Yeah, really, the, the section that was devoted to his kind of scientific pursuits was really something that, that completely captivated me. He sort of had this like <laughs> relentless kind of restless 
interest in absolutely everything. He he sort of had this systematic process of of studying every single aspect of the physical world. And there wasn't anything that didn't interest him from astronomy to botany to geometry and to anatomy. Um, and he used all of that. He put it all into his paintings. He used it to make his paintings better. He didn't just want to paint what he saw. He wanted to understand what he saw and he wanted to convey that understanding to the viewer. And I think that that's part of what makes the Leonardo, Leonardo, right? It's this kind of fundamental kind of philosophical search for something real and something true, which is kind of where this aura that his paintings has come from, in my, in my opinion, that fundamental kind of search for truth that really gives him that, that oomph. That is beautifully put. So one thing that I think most visitors are going to be somewhat surprised to find in the show is that the Mona Lisa, which is by far his most famous painting, is actually not in the exhibition per se. Why is that and where is it? That's a really good question because the Louvre owns the Mona Lisa. I mean, that's why a lot of people go to the Louvre. So I asked the curators about this and they explained to me that it's really purely from a practical perspective. It was impossible to kind of include the painting in the exhibition. That's because it's around 30,000 people a day come to the Louvre. That's 10 million people a year. And 80% of those visitors come just to see the Mona Lisa. So the Mona Lisa is, is not in the show. But as a matter of fact, I know from your reporting that in some aspect, it actually is present in the show. And mm -hmm. tell me about the final gallery that you go to when walking through the exhibition? I think you're talking about the VR experience, which is this much vaunted virtual reality experience. It's the first time the Louvre has ever dabbled with virtual reality. And it's an experience of, of the Mona Lisa <laughs> through virtual reality. The show is kind of a, you move in a, a circle as you go around it and, and it's kind of a little bit separate. So it, it's at the end and it, it definitely feels like an addition to the show and not, you know, a central part of it. Yeah, it, it's really cool. So it feels like an educational tool, kind of in the same way that, you know, an, like an audio guide or an interactive kind of screen telling you about the exhibition would work. So you actually put on the headset. If I'm not mistaken, what did you see? So it is a seven minute narrated film, which is done all in, in sort of 3D and you can look around yourself and, and you start in the Salle des Etats looking at the Mona Lisa on her new midnight blue background. <laughs> You can learn, in there, there's a narrator who kind of takes you through a little bit of some tidbits of information about the painting, about the sitter, Lisa Giocondo, and it tells you things about her, like how her smile is a reference to the surname Giocondo, which means happy in Italian, as well as kind of debunks some of the myths about her. I mean, one that I found quite funny. They made a big deal about the fact that she couldn't, she wasn't pregnant, um, which is not a myth that I had heard about the Mona Lisa. So I thought it was quite funny that they were, they felt the need to debunk that one. And then the other one was, I think it's about how it looks kind of like her hair is loose in the painting, but that would have been very inappropriate for a woman of her uh, status in that time. So they kind of, they talk about how her hair was actually up and, and she was wearing a veil. And then you kind of, uh, it takes you to this kind of serene, kind of like a cloistered apartment in, in an Italian loggia. And you meet a sort of CGI version of the Mona Lisa 
herself. It builds around the painting. You know, what, what happens outside of the frame of Leonardo's work? You see that she's sitting on a chair and she kind of turns to look at you. You see the Italian loggia that she is sat in and wow. the landscape behind her, which is kind of partially imagined. And you're then invited to <laughs> climb on into uh, an imagined version of Leonardo's uh, visionary flying machine. Uh, and there's a sketch of that, which is also included in the exhibition. And you can kind of, you fly uh, across the landscape in Leonardo's flying machine, which is something that I think, you know, is, is a bit of fun. And I think it'll appeal to uh, a lot of people who haven't, you know, experienced virtual reality before, and especially a uh, younger audience, I think definitely will attract them. So this is the Louvre's first experiment with VR, and nobody thinks of the Louvre as being a very loosey-goosey, kind of gimmicky museum. Does this VR experience come off as really organic to the show, or does it come off as somehow, you know, a little bit odd? It definitely feels like a separate, uh, a separate thing to the show, like an educational tool that kind of helps you to understand. I think it, it acknowledges that, you know, the Mona Lisa is not there, but it tells you some more about the painting. And I think that it really makes you want to go upstairs and see the Mona Lisa after you've listened to it or, or, or experienced it. So it doesn't feel out of place per se in the Louvre because it's not, the Louvre is not saying, hey, here, this is just as good as the Mona Lisa. It's a way of an educational tool that kind of helps to understand, you know, some more about uh, the Mona Lisa. And it's something that I could see working with other other paintings in the Louvre as a way to kind of educate people a little bit more about them in the same way that an audio guide or a video presentation might kind of supplement the exhibition rather than kind of be designed to replace anything. So visitors to the show can climb the stairs and find the Mona Lisa, but I think they might have more trouble finding a different very famous Da Vinci artwork in the show, which by which, I, of course, I'm referring to the Salvador Mundi, the painting of Jesus Christ that sold for $450 million at Christie's two years ago and then vanished. And since then, its whereabouts have been a mystery and it's been breathlessly speculated about whether it's going to appear in the Louvre show or not. So far, it seems it hasn't materialized in the Louvre. What are the curators saying about its absence and is it going to be absent from the show for the whole time? That's a great question. It's the one that everybody is asking. It's the, the one that everybody desperately wants to know, you know, where is it? And it seemed, you know, right up until the sort of press views of the exhibition, it really did seem like it was going to be included. I spoke with the curators about a week before the opening of the exhibition. Of course, I asked them, will the Salvatore Mundi be in the show? And they sort of in a sing-song voice told me that it was going to be a surprise. But that really <laughs> kind of led me to believe that, you know, the, the preparations were all there. And in Indeed, they had made, they actually made two catalogs for the show, one of them that included the Salvatore Mundi, one which didn't. And th they wow. even had a, a space for it in the final room where the John the Baptist is and where the St. Anne is as well. That was where it was supposed to go. But it seems that at the last minute, I mean, the lender has decided or negotiations are ongoing. Mm -hmm. It's unclear. But at the press view, they said that they were still hoping that it might come. It might be included in the show at some point. So eh, we're not at the end of the saga yet. It might still be included. But I think that at this point, I mean, the exhibition opens to the public tomorrow and it is not in the show at the moment. So you mentioned the lender who 
is still unknown to the vast majority of the world. I think that there are various theories, there's various news reports about who it might be. At this point in time, what is your reporting telling you about the true identity of the owner of the Salvador Mundi? I mean, it's a it's a, a big question and there's been a lot of speculation about that. It's widely believed to be the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. We get there <laughs> through a couple of different hurdles. So this is because the buyer at that Christie's auction was outed to be a little known Saudi prince who was not an art collector called Prince Bader bin Abdullah bin Mohammed. And the New York Times outed him as having bought the work. And it was believed that he was acting as a proxy for the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, who does have more of an interest in art. However, when this was outed in the press and this connection to Mohammed bin Salman was made, it was kind of quickly announced. The painting was actually destined for the Louvre in Abu Dhabi and the Louvre Abu Dhabi itself announced that it had been acquired by Abu Dhabi's Department of Culture and Tourism for the museum. And I know that in at least uh, in 2018, at least one legal document listed the current owner as the Department of Culture and Tourism of the United Arab Emirates. So that's what my reporting tells me. But I know that there has been a lot of speculation about whether that Department of Culture and Tourism is acting as a cover for Mohammed bin Salman, who might not want people to know that he owns the <laughs> painting. That is purely speculation. And of course, Mohammed bin Sultan is the um, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia who has been linked to the death of a Washington Post columnist and who is also supposedly trying to make investments in all these Western art institutions, most recently Desert X. So there's a lot of controversy that continues to swirl around him, as well as this incredible mystery over whether he has participation in owning the, the Salvador Mundi. As a matter of fact, our own columnist at Artnet, Kenny Schachter, grabbed the international spotlight a little while ago when he reported that the painting had actually been delivered to MBS's mega yacht in the Middle East. And considering that the curators seem to be anticipating that it could show up any moment, is there any indication about where it is? Is the piece in Paris and they're just holding it back to finalize some detail or it could, is, it, is it somewhere else in the world? Do we, do we have any idea? We don't know for sure. My temptation is to say that it should be somewhere in Europe or somewhere close to the Louvre as they're ready to install it. You know, they're at the ready. Um, but I suppose, you know, with the resources of the Saudi Crown Prince or the United Arab Emirates, that kind of, it could be flown in at any moment. I'm not sure. I mean, it, it, but there, there seem to be, you know, there would be bureaucratic kind of hurdles of getting a painting that valuable into the country. So I feel like the temptation is to say that it is somewhere in Europe at the moment and that it is just, they're waiting, you know, the final negotiations to kind of really, to allow it to become part of the show. But then again, I, I feel like there has been so much up in the air about this painting that I'm not confident enough to say anything for sure. So, you know, who knows? I mean, there's been a lot of speculation as to why it isn't in the exhibition, actually, to do with, I mean, part of it is, I mean, as you rightly point out, you know, there's this, this Saudi involvement in a lot of kind of cultural collaborations. And some people are saying is, are the Saudis holding it hostage as a bargaining chip with the French to build some closer cultural ties? But there have been a lot of different speculations. I mean, one of them, you know, some people are concerned about the, the state of conservation of the piece, which was already very 
fragile. It was heavily conserved before it was auctioned. And I think that before the auction at Christie's, they actually removed the protective glass so that it would photograph better. And that vitrine was never replaced. And without that very, very precise environmental and, and climactic conditions, the painting could deteriorate. So that was one of the theories as to why it never showed up whenever it was supposed to at the Louvre Abu Dhabi. It was to be exhibited in September of 2018 and it just never showed up. So some people were saying that. And then there is one more theory, which I think is the one that I am leaning most towards. And that is when I spoke to the curators, they told me, I asked them about the attribution of this painting because there has been a lot of controversy between art historians who've kind of disputed over whether this is a painting that can be fully attributed to Leonardo as it was when it was auctioned as an autograph work by Leonardo. But some art historians have a different view. They think it might have been completed by Leonardo and his studio. Others think that Leonardo had no involvement at all and that it was just a work produced in his studio. So when I spoke to the Louvre curators, they weren't able to tell me what their view of the attribution was because the curators at the Louvre and French National Museums are not allowed to express their personal opinion on works like this. However, they did tell me that if the work is included in the show, it will get an attribution from the Louvre that will uh, be in the Mm -hmm. wall text. So it's my thinking that, you know, the whoever is lending the painting doesn't like what that attribution is going to be. And that's why they're withholding the work. And of course, since the work sold, the amount of people in the world who are curious to look at this thing has exponentially increased. So if it was shown in the Louvre, every single professional Leonardo da Vinci scholar and every amateur Leonardo da Vinci sleuth in the world would be (laughs) massing around this painting to scrutinize it, you know, minutely. So I can imagine that if there's any doubt over the authenticity or the condition of the painting, that it could be really a, a deal breaker for putting it through. Adding to the sense of mystery and confusion surrounding the exhibition, Well, everybody knows that the Salvador Mundi is not in the show, at least as of yet. A Salvador Mundi is in the show. Can you tell me about the mysterious apparition of the second Salvador Mundi in the Louvre? Yes, absolutely. So it was quite funny in the press exhibi- uh, view of the exhibition. Uh, people were, were stopping and double taking at this because they were thinking, is that the Salvatore Monday? But there's nobody crowded around it. You know, what, what's going on here? Um, and, and that's because, yes, it is the Salvatore Monday, but it's not the Salvatore Monday that everybody is interested to know about. Um, this one is the Salvatore Monday is kind of lesser known, less cool you know, younger cousin. Uh, it's uh, the so-called Degane version of the work, which uh, has been attributed uh, to Leonardo's disciple Marco D'Agiano. More controversially, it has also been attributed to Leonardo himself, but that has all been disputed. In the Louvre, it's, um, it's attributed to Leonardo's studio. Um, and it's kind of clear that this is meant to be a kind of accompaniment. I mean, it's in the room where if the Salvador Mundi were to be included in the exhibition, it would be in that room. It was pretty hilarious, I must say. There was a kind of, you know, to watch that. I stood by it for a while and I watched people walking past and then double taking and then thinking, oh no, that's silly. Um, you know, because I think not a lot of people know that there are these other copies of the Salvatore Mundi, but it was something that Leonardo did a lot. I mean, he, he returned to the same subjects again and again and again. And he, you know, his studio made copies. That's kind of part of how they learned the, 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 the practice. Um, and I, I think Leonardo himself 
You know, he would do stuff again and again until he felt that it was perfect. And one of the takeaways from the show is actually that his interest in science, which is often viewed as a kind of distraction from painting, and that's why he only produced, you know, these kind of 15 or 17 paintings um, that were in his lifetime, it was because he was just too distracted by science. But uh, what the curators of the exhibition kind of try to kind of hone in here is that actually his pursuit of science was all about this pursuit of perfection and he was a perfectionist and he really you know painting was this kind of divine uh discipline for him and he really really wanted to get it right so he would return to the same subject again and again and again until he felt that he really had it um and i think that you can see that in in his most accomplished work that is a very thoughtful answer so what is the mood like in paris in the run-up to the show has it been gripped by leonardo frenzy or you are there leonardo da vinci themed baguettes that are being sold in the street (laughs) (laughs) it's certainly something that everybody was talking about i mean i think nothing quite takes hold of the imagination um, and the interest of the public like leonardo da vinci and then whenever you add to that existing kind of hype and aura there's all this juicy intrigue i mean there was a political standoff with the italians about whether or not the you know vital loans to the exhibition were going to get approved and then of course there's this whole question about the salvatore mundi you know will it be there and is it a leonardo and i think that that you know just all added up to everybody talking about it nearly constantly during the preceding weeks so just finally, on, on one last note, at the same time Leonardo is getting all this attention, another aspect of Renaissance art history has been generating a lot of excitement, and that's the recent groundswell of exhibitions given to long-overlooked female artists from the Renaissance. And one painter, Plautilla Nelli, has entered the spotlight recently in Florence after her version of The Last Supper, which was hidden in storage for an astonishing 450 years, was recently returned to view after an extensive restoration. So I wonder, why do you think that there is all this attention being paid to the Renaissance now? What is it that makes this kind of art and this era of art so resonant with today's readers and uh, museum viewers? I think part of that has to do with a re-examination of art history that is going on at the moment. Sort of curators and historians are putting in this long overdue work of, of excavating the, the hidden or overlooked role that women have played in the art historical canon. I mean, the Prado at the moment also has an exhibition uh, devoted to a lesser known female Renaissance painter, Lavinia Fontana. The Uffizi galleries in Florence are making a concerted effort to show more female artists. And uh, of course, the National Gallery in London recently purchased uh, a rare self-portrait of the 17th century Italian artist Artemisia uh, Gentileschi for, I think it was $4.6 million. So I think that the part of the intrigue of the Renaissance is this kind of looking back and reflecting on art history and excavating kind of different parts that were overlooked in the kind of Western art historical canon. But more broadly, it's a very big question. And I think that that deserves a big answer. And I think that in times of uncertainty and kind of crisis, which we're certainly having over here in London with Brexit um, and mm-hmm. in Europe more broadly with the rise of kind of, of nationalism across the board and in the US with the, the current sitting president, uh, uh, I think that people tend to look backwards with a kind of nostalgia for um, something that they felt was certain, even if it might not have been at the time. Um, And you kind of get this kind of reflection and this search for a bygone era 
where you can kind of safely project a kind of certainty onto. I think it's always easier to look at things that have already happened and that are certain than it is to kind of pose those tough questions about what has yet to come. So in any case, it seems like the Renaissance is having a Renaissance and we're going to be enjoying uh, these (laughs) kinds of shows for years to come. Um, Thank you very much, Naomi. This has been great. This has been The Art Angle. Please, if you want to follow us, find us on SoundCloud or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you can leave a rating, that would be great as well. Otherwise, see you next week on the next episode of The Art Angle. Bye.